Welcome those of you watching online. Welcome to the Chicago cohort. Isn't God good? Mm. Isn't he worthy? Yes, he is. Of it all. Today we're going to continue our study of the book of Romans. We'll be diving into Romans chapter 3 and we'll be learning from our pastor and visionary leader, Joe Warostek. Thank you. Amen. God bless you guys. You're awesome. Thank you for that hand clap. That's somewhat awkward, but always appreciated. Love you guys. Let's open up to Romans chapter 3. Continuing on with Paul's thought, he is taking us now to the depravity of all mankind. In Romans chapter 1, he taught us that without God, we turn to our own wicked devices, and it leads ultimately in a perverse lifestyle of homosexuality. That is a sign of ultimate depravity. And I was very clear on that. That doesn't mean that those who have same-sex attraction should come under condemnation, but be honest with themselves and notice in their own life that they are wrestling against nature itself. And so whether or not they are born that way or whether or not uh, they come that way over time and through life experiences, which the majority do come that way, most of the time through life experiences that are not easy to recall, but through their childhood and their development, it can be found there. But either way, the idea that homosexuality is the furthest you can be in a depraved mindset doesn't take away our hope that God can change them or to give them the right and ordered desires. It just shows us that that is ultimate rebellion against God when you do it and you approve of those who do it. And a lot of times we think to ourselves we're being compassionate with those who are in the LGBTQ lifestyle by trying to affirm that as a natural desire. And there's actually some Christian movements out here that want to claim the title gay Christian. And they want Christians to be able to say they're gay in their orientation, but Christian in their living. I'm not talking about a pro-homosexual Christianity. That's not what I mean. I mean an actual orthodox Christianity that believes that the LGBT lifestyle is a sin, but they want to use that term gay Christian so that the homosexual will understand that it wasn't their choice and it fits into the same categories as physical disability. But that is not true. Homosexuality can never be redeemed in and of itself as a positive action. So you cannot be a gay Christian no more than you could be an adultering Christian or an adulterous Christian. And so it is a lifestyle behavior now some people ask, what about the thoughts that they have as in temptation? Does the thought that they have as temptation make them worse than the one who has the temptation of adultery or anger, etc.? Not in the sense of violating God's law, but it makes it harder for them to overcome it because, once again, it is a disordered thing that cannot be redeemed. Your anger is turned towards the wrong thing or the wrong way, but anger itself is not bad. God gets angry. 
uh, your adulterous heart is turned towards the wrong thing, but the desire to have sex with the opposite sex is not a bad thing. Sex is honorable and holy. There is nothing in all of Scripture that ever affirms a LGBTQ lifestyle. Some people try to point to like David and Jonathan. That is literally perverting, changing the version. That is a perversion of what they were. That was friendship. So two men can be friends, two ladies can be friends, kind of like the Golden Girls. They can live together and be friends, but anything more than that in the way of their attraction and sexuality is sinful. So it cannot be redeemed. There is nothing redeem-worthy in that behavior. That is abominable to God. Does everybody get that? People who have that can be redeemed. It's the same thing as suicide and a few other uh, damnable sins that have no correspondence to an attribute that can be redeemed within it, okay? So like abortion, there's nothing to redeem in the act of abortion, okay? So these are the kinds of things we talked about in Romans chapter 1, that people suppress the knowledge of God, and as the, the star on top of their idolatrous tree is the affirmation of the homosexual lifestyle. So if you want to see a uh, debased culture at its height, they're affirming that. That's what it looks like, and that's where we are now. Then we moved into chapter 2, which was last week, and we learned that both Jew and Gentile are committing sins and are going to be held accountable to them, and the Jew is trying to judge the Gentiles, saying they're better than them because they have the law, but Paul is saying they're not keeping it. That doesn't mean there was no Jew that ever wasn't righteous in God's eyes. David was righteous. Uh, Some of them were even called blameless. Noah was called blameless, okay? But what Paul is saying is the Jews of that day were not living according to the law, and yet they were judging others, and so rightfully they were deserving of God's wrath as well. And then we talked just a little bit about what happens to the person that has never heard the law or the gospel, but yet is not violating the law or the gospel. And I showed you that in my opinion that they're included into the salvation message of Jesus if they lived according to their conscience. So once again, that would not apply to Muslims and other religions because they're violating the laws of God. This would be a very unique sliver of humanity that has not heard the gospel, had not heard the law, and yet in their conscience they abide by the moral law I showed you that I have an inclusion there. And then I also showed you that there's people that are more inclusive than me, like Billy Graham and C.S. Lewis, who said that even other religions who had not heard the gospel could be saved. I do not agree with that. And then you have the Roman Catholics who say that even atheists and other religions can be saved even after hearing the gospel because they're doing what they know is right. And the Pope just signed a paper with a top Islamic leader to show that he now affirms other religions. So they're just as far out as far out can be. And then there is the last branch, which is everybody ultimately gets saved, universalism, regardless of how they lived. Even Hitler gets saved in the end. And uh, I knew a guy that was quite a you know conservative Christian, and now he's falling into that heresy. I know a few, actually. So be careful when you're studying that you don't go more towards what men have said and not what the Word has said. Now let's go to Romans chapter 3, 
where we now see that everybody is under the power of sin, every single person. Romans chapter 3 verse 1 says, What advantage then is there in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Were there un, were, excuse me, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Now, why is he taking that argument here? Up with the Jew. As I told you uh, last week, the diatribe starts right around chapter 2 and goes all the way to the end of chapter 11. And who is he arguing with? He's arguing with a backslidden Jew. Now, in the congregation of Rome, there are saved Jews and saved Gentiles. So they may not be doing these things, but needing to hear these things because the people around them in the Jewish community are promoting this kind of a lie. So we call this the interlocutor. The one that Paul is debating in this entire passage from 2 all the way to the end of 11 is a backslidden Jew. So he's now arguing with them by asking them the, you know, this hypothetical opponent, he's asking them these questions. Well, do you think that I'm saying there's no advantage to being a Jew, that being a Jew was meaningless and it was all for nothing now that Jew and Gentile are all being saved the same way. He goes, no, God forbid. There was a very specific purpose for the Jew and even the circumcision. But, but that doesn't mean they get a special privilege in salvation. The privilege of salvation, as we'll learn, especially in chapter 4, is by faith. And Abraham is that example because he does the route of salvation before he's circumcised. And then when he becomes circumcised, he's the first real Jew in the sense of being called out to be the father of nations. So Paul is going to use that and say, before he's circumcised, he's Gentile. And so he represents the faith that saves everybody as a Gentile. After becoming circumcised and becoming God's chosen person, he now stands as the representative for all of Israel, those who have been circumcised and have the covenant and are saved also by faith. So Abraham will reach in both directions, pre-law, post-law, pre-God's people, post-God's people, and he'll show that both of them, Jew and Gentile, are saved by faith. The scripture that's mentioned here is Psalm 51.4 that's talking about God is still good even if Jews act bad. Now there's about two false doctrines that I want to take on in this passage and one is worse than the other. The, the first one, which is not so bad, is Calvinism. So I, I'm going to, as we go through all of these passages, I'm going to keep rebutting Calvinism. Because as I said before, we don't just want to show up to chapter 9 and try to figure it out. I would never debate Calvinism on chapter 9. And like Dr. James White loves to debate people on chapter 9 or chapter 8. I want to debate the entire book of Romans. And I would love to have a debate like that where we stick to the book of Romans and only the scriptures mentioned in Romans in the Old Testament. That's it. You can't bring up any other teaching. You can't go to any other of Paul's writings. It's only Romans and the Old Testament references Make your point now. And I think the point would be 
overwhelmingly Arminian to that side and crush Calvinism over and over and over. It would be pummeled down the hill. You get what I'm, it would just be pummeled over and over again. As I can show as we're building up to those key chapters that they like to use. You see, it says, what if some were unfaithful? See, Calvinism wants to always put it on God choosing who is going to be faithful because they agree with us that faith is a gift, that it doesn't come from yourself. Okay, but then they say, if God gives it to you, how can it fail? Because if he gave you the faith, it's going to accomplish what he wanted to start. And they'll use a scripture like that. But they leave out the choice of the person. Right here in Romans chapter 3, it says they had faith, but then they became unfaithful. So what went wrong there? The choice of the person changed. Are you getting that? The person changed. The Jew changed. So take like Aaron. Aaron's faithful with God. He's faithfully serving God. Moses goes up to the mountain, and what does Aaron do with all the Chicago Shore folks down below? Makes an idol, starts pumping fists, gets naked, and has an orgy-like party. Sexually perverted, and just, and just lets the whole thing go wild. So what did he do? He became on. Faithful, unfaithful. That's what he did. It wasn't that God now gave him faith, removed faith, and God is the one playing chess against himself. No, God uses all things for his glory. He knows the choices of man. He's not dependent upon them. He's allowed, in his choice, he's allowed us to have choice. He's still sovereign. I wrestle my kids. I make a choice to let them do some things. I still can throw them across the room if I want to. Do you understand? All-powerful doesn't mean you exert your power all the time. If you would have done that, we would have been robots. So since we are made in his image, we have countercultural choice. Jesus even showed that he himself had choice. Now, that's a real question, you know, could he have sinned and all of that? But we know we had choice because he said it, not my will but your will. And the will that he's subjecting to the Father is the will of a man, the human will, the will that Adam allowed to, uh, to usurp him and to overtake him. And that, once again, messes up their theology because if you can only act, as they say, in your will according to your nature, then how did Adam ever have the will to sin when he didn't have a sin nature? See, they want to say, you, yeah, you have free will, but it's always attached to your nature. You're a sinner, and you're always going to sin. There's your free will bound to your nature. But how did Adam and Eve have countercausal choice and, and moral choice when they're to do good or evil when all their nature was good? Okay, and then some people say, well, stop talking about Adam and Eve. You're not them anymore. You're now born into sin, and so you're always going to choose evil. Yeah, but do I do all the evil that I can do all the time? No, I'm already making choices between degrees of evil. That's why Jesus even said, you being evil know how to give uh, you know, bread to your children and not a snake when they ask for bread. You know? So it's like we're not all as evil as we can be, and why aren't we all evil as we can be? Because God is just simply always just holding back our evil, you know, evil barometer? No, because we're making those choices. Now, ultimately, God only lets man be evil in so many ways, but personally, God gave us our freedom to be evil in this boundary, you know? Like, I can't be so evil to live 10 lifetimes or to fly up to the sky and do all these crazy things like some crazy villain, but I can be evil in my mind. I, I am unrestricted in my mind. God has allowed me to come up with the most vilest things in my mind. Don't do that now and test yourself, okay? But we can. So it says here, it's the unfaithfulness of man. 
But does that now nullify the faithfulness of God? So to the backslidden Jew, has your unfaithfulness nullified God's faithfulness to the Jewish people? No. And this is the part that blows my mind, is most Calvinists are also replacement theologians. They believe that the Jewish people no longer have the promises valid to them today as a, a, a special culture and group in Israel and the promises of the Old Testament. They think that literally that their unfaithfulness have nullified their promises. And the only way now they can get into it is if they're in the church And if they're not in the church, they'll never experience any of those promises. Now, that's true to one sense. They do have to become a Christian. A Jew that's not a Christian does not get those promises. But God is bringing about those promises no matter what they individually do. He made the promise. So even if they're all unfaithful, he'll wait for the remnant. Or he'll choose out those he knows will be the remnant. So they're not going to nullify their plan. They're not going to nullify God's plan, in other words. God is going to be patient. And just like how Paul got saved and other Jews got saved, God knows who's going to get saved at the appropriate time. And so I like to look at it as he already knows who gets saved in, and so he goes back and he gives us the book of Revelation. We know that in the end times that there's going to be 144,000 that get saved. And then, and then Romans even tells us then all Israel gets saved. And I think that's all towards the end there. And right now we're still preaching to them and they're making their choices. But God has said, I've already made my choice to be faithful to Israel no matter what they do. So what is that to us? That is the same thing to us. God is going to be faithful to the church whether or not we're faithful to the church. So we better get inside the church and be faithful. Does everybody get that? God's going to be faithful to what he has called the church. And he knew it ahead of time, right? So he's already made the promises of what he's already seen come to pass. And now he's saying, I'll do it whether or not Vinny's here, whether or not Joe's here, whether or not Jared's. I'm going to do it. I'm going to be faithful. But now what's, what's the, the choice you and I have? What, what is being said here to these backslidden Jews is you have the choice now, in other words. Which one are you going to be like? Are you going to be like the unfaithful ones or are you going to be like the faithful ones? And that's where we get to Romans chapter 10. And Romans chapter 11 is that he's, he's not giving up on the Jews even in his own day. Jews can come back into the things of God. Just as they stopped being faithful, they can start being faithful. And just as the Gentiles were unfaithful, they can be faithful. And now that they're in as faithful, saved people, they can go back to being unfaithful. So it's like faith or unbelief, faith or unbelief. Everybody's coming in and out through those doors, you know. It's like you come in through faith, it's, it's, you know, door swings this way, you come in through faith, and then if you turn back around, you go out this way, it's unbelief. It's like two sides of the door, two sides of the coin. Do you get it? And so Psalm 51, uh, 51.4 says, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. And so let me just take this Calvinism thing out here real quick. Just because God knows we're all going to sin doesn't mean we're not going to be held responsible for our sins. And that doesn't take away his goodness. On the the worldview of Calvinism, Calvinism takes away the goodness of God because ultimately, why are people sinning? Because God has not redeemed them. If he is the one that makes the choice to to turn on the switch and he's not turning on these people's switches, then he is not justified by his own standards to judge them. Because what is he judging them for? 
Somebody may say, well, they're still sinners, and they love it, and they like to do it. Yeah, but what changed the, the person that's a Christian now from being a sinner according to a Calvinist? Is God flipped on the switch inside their heart. They didn't do anything. I was a dead man. I didn't even make a choice. God chose me and all these things. Flipped on the switch, and he, he, he brought me to Christ. You know, he brought me to himself like Paul's knocked off the, you know, the, the donkey or whatever. So, okay. If that's true, then who is ultimately responsible for murderers murdering today? God, because he did not flip on their switch. But according to the Arminian and biblical worldview, who is responsible for the murders and all the sin? The people, because they're not letting God switch, you know, turn them on towards him. He's drawing them, but they are resisting him. Think about that. Grace is still needed in both worldviews, but one is irresistible, the other one is resistible. We don't believe we can save ourselves, and I'll show you that in Romans chapter 3. Even in the context of those who have never heard the gospel, they are not saving themselves, because I'm going to show you in the book of Acts 17, God is still reaching out to them. Though he is not far from any of you. What does he want? That you would seek out after him and perhaps find him. So that's why I have hope for the unreached people group, this sliver of humanity that we don't know much about in the Bible other than that they have consciences and they'll be judged, condemned, or defended by them. And so God is right when he judges even those who have never heard the gospel because what did they have? A conscience, right? So everybody is judged rightly by God. What would be the biggest excuse a Calvinist could, a person could say in the Calvinist worldview? I never served you because you never turned me on to serve you. What was I supposed to do? Well, you never would have wanted it anyway. I never wanted it because you never gave it to me. Isn't that what you said about the Christian? They never wanted it until you gave it to them and made them want it. Because they even say in Calvinism, your wanter is broke. You can't want it unless he makes you want it. Do you get that? So the very fact that I never wanted it, now I'm being judged for, is the very thing that you did to me. You said to you, in Romans, you make one clay to be thrown into the garbage and another one for a noble use. And I'm supposed to say back to you as the potter, how can you do that to me? That's their worldview. And so that's why John Wesley said it makes God out worse than the devil. Because at least the devil says, I don't want to save any of you. I've only want to destroy you. But God is saying, I want to save you. And then in his hidden and secret will, he's saying, I'm going to condemn you and do nothing to help you. So how do we look at those scriptures? You know, the, 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 pot, uh, the potter taking what he wants. Exactly how it's meant to be taken as nations. As it's meant to be taken now. It's faithful, unfaithful. Edom, unfaithful. Being judged by God and because of what they did to Israel. And, and it, were the Jewish people spared? No, that's his whole point. He's trying to show you guys can't get upset that now Gentiles are coming in. Because your unfaithfulness has brought this about and God is using it. But if you want to be faithful, you can come in too. But don't think yourself so high and mighty because you're a Jew. Because you'll get judged just like them. Is that not clear? Amen. I feel like I'm arguing with my interlocutor. And here's the thing. Calvinism thinks their interlocutor is an Arminian person who believes in free will. And that's why they try to change this into arguing with us. But Paul is not arguing 
with an Arminian, and he's not arguing with a Calvinist. He is arguing with a backslidden Jew who thinks his salvation or her salvation is because they are chosen people, and it doesn't matter what they do. It's the Jewish people Jesus was dealing with. Oh, you think you're a child of Abraham. Out of these stones, God could raise up children of Abraham. You're really children of the devil because you do what your father does. The devil, he's been a liar, and you're a liar. And that's why it says right here, let every human being be a liar. No one's going to come back to God on judgment day and say, you're not judging me rightly. Every person is going to go, yeah, you're right. You get that guy in a village, pick any village you want, the Nordic villages, before the gospel reached there. Let's say they were worshiping some idol or some ancestor, and they were raiding villages and stuff, and then they die, but they've never met the Jewish people, they never heard the gospel. God's going to be right, because he's going to be like, remember in your conscience when I told you how stupid it was when you cut down that tree and made it into an image and you bowed down to that? Well, that was me speaking to you. I'm right when I judge you now. You remember when you killed that person, and at first it didn't feel right, and then as you killed more, you became more bloodthirsty. That was because you knew you weren't supposed to do that and you had to fight against your conscience. And then take every Jewish person. You knew you weren't supposed to do this. You knew I'd split the Red Sea for you, but you turned your back on me. I had preserved my word and testimony through your ancestors. You didn't listen to me. You crucified Jesus. And then everybody now in this generation, you've heard of Jesus. You know the story of Christmas. You purposely rejected the truth and therefore you were handed over to a lie. That's why you see so many former Christians in cults because they get handed over to lies because they've rejected the truth. They've said in their mind, well, I know it's not there, so let me try Wicca. You know, like Tom Brady's wife. I'm not going to go to Christianity and pray. I'm going to do spells, and I'm going to have him do mantras and do all these things with magic stones. Just learned about that. Seriously, Tom Brady's wife is a good witch, she said. And then I'm not going to look into Christianity. I'm going to look into now whatever Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie are doing or whatever Zac Efron's doing or whatever popular star is doing today. Well, why? Because my eyes now are closed off to this. I'm open to that. And then now when you're open to that, all of this wickedness comes. And one of my hobbies is to study cults. And whether it's the Jim Jones cult or the Maharashi cult or all these, you see all of these former Christians in these cults, and then about 20 years later, after they've lost their mind, after they've been raped five times, after their leader has stolen from them, after people have abused them, now they wonder how they got there. Well, the reason of how you got there was your unfaithfulness to the gods you knew and suppressed, as Romans 1 said. So you opened yourself up to all of this wickedness. Let me read this again and then Keep following it through as he goes through the condemnation of all humanity without Christ. What advantage then is there in being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. So they had a role to play then and they have a role to play now. What if some were unfaithful? Were there, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? No, not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. 
If this were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim, that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is just. What is the second group I have to address now? The Hebrew Roots Movement. And long before the black Hebrew roots movement, there was the white or Anglo-Hebrew roots movement. I don't know if you knew of that, but it was called um, British Israelism. The white people of British believed they were the lost tribes of Israel and created a system of Christianity mixed with law and put themselves as the Jewish people. As a matter of fact, black Hebrew Israelites borrow their materials all the time because it was all the same conspiracies and ideas that led them to that belief, and then all the ways they twist the scripture to keep following the law. I have literally, in this lobby, debated with a black Hebrew Israelite that had an Armstrong book, that had an, I forget his first name, but his name was Armstrong, had his book, but he was a white Israelite. And I said, you know how silly this is, right? He believed he was the Israelite. Well, I don't agree with who the Israelites were, but everything else he said were right. He got that part wrong, but this part is right. True. And then also, not as extreme, but the Seventh-day Adventists, they are uh, modern-day Judaizers, uh, people who are keeping the law for righteousness' sake. And then even now, Michael Brown and others will tell you, popular in, in charismatic circles are Christians. You know, first they started blowing the shofar, and then they started wanting to celebrate Passover. And then before you know it now, they're full-on converting to Judaism or mixing it into Christianity. Seriously, because they've been deceived into going back to the law. Because what does the law provide for them? It provides some comfort that I'm doing more to be more to have more. I'm doing more to be more to have more on judgment day. I'm doing more to be more to have more. And that takes away the actual trust and the lifestyle of faith and inward holiness. They wanted an outward holiness. So there's an appeal to the monk just as much as there's an appeal to the Buddhist monk as there is to the Catholic monk as there is to the Judaizer down Christianity. There's that sense of I'm earning this. I'm boasting and I can boast in what I can do. And what Paul is going to do now is he is going to crush and demolish that mindset. What he's now going to do is use scriptures, and I have them all referenced here. He's going to use scriptures that are all mostly pointed towards the, the Gentile, and he's going to say this applies to you as Jews as well. Like Psalm 14:1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. He's going to start applying that to Jewish people because he's going to say you're just as depraved as them. So you thought you were looking down upon them, but how you're living now is no better because you're not living by faith. That's what we're going to get into in Romans chapter 4 and 5. But right here, he answers a slander because you could see the Jewish people slandering back at him. Well, if we're not keeping all these laws and uh, it all works out for good, well, I guess as much as I sin, the more grace comes out, that's good for God and good for me. So they take what he's saying as the law of the Spirit, grace, and the salvation by faith, and they turn it into just this lawlessness. So what's the other person got? Legalism. And then what's the other one doing? Lawlessness. But what's the truth? Love for God. 
Love for God and his word will result in all the obedience you'll ever need. But if you neglect true love for God, then you're going you're gonna to be in one of those two ditches where you're just going to say, I'm going to be legalistic. i got to be legalistic. And maybe Judaism is not your thing, but you can still be legalistic in your fasting, legalistic in all your do's and don'ts, and you feel like you're earning the miracle, you're earning the people coming to your church, you're earning your wisdom based on all these things you do. And then on the other end, you can be so lawless and say, well, it's all grace, it's all God. It doesn't matter. I can't ever you know, get out of, taken out of his hands, and he'll always forgive me so I can just do whatever I want. I'm still going to heaven. But right there in the middle on the highway of holiness is the love for God and his word, amen, and to love his law. And the law we know primarily being referred to as the moral law, and then the stipulations we have are the laws of Christ. They had the laws of Moses, which of course we know came from Christ, but specifically they were given by Moses, 613, they were wrapped up in that covenant, and now the, the teachings of Christ become the laws of Christ, the apostles and the disciples, and that's why we need the New Testament. It teaches us what they are. So do we keep committing sin that more good can come out of it? No. That's not how we uphold the law. That's not how we show the good that God was teaching us in the law. And that's how it's going to actually end, is that when we live by faith, we're upholding the law. And then the Judaizer is going to say, see, ha-ha, there you go, you got to do the law. But then in Romans chapter 6, it's going to actually absolutely contradict him if he thinks he's getting away with that. Like he's, he's getting saved from the law to be born again to now fulfill the law. That's what they'll actually say. They'll try to bring that back on you. Like, yeah, we know we couldn't be saved by the law, and that was the Jewish people's problems. But now that we're saved by faith, not, from the law, uh, not, not by the law, now we're supposed to keep the law, and that's what we go back to doing. And that's what the, Paul said in Galatians. You've literally gone in a full circle, and now you're worse off than you were before. Because now you think this is what God wants you to do, and you were better off when you didn't even know what Jesus wanted you to do, and you just kept following the law as a legalist in that sense. Now that you have Jesus and you're a legalist, you're worse. Because you're deceived at the whole entire purpose of why Jesus came. So let's go through all of these uh, passages that he brings together. And notice how the preacher preaches. Let us preach like the preacher. A lot of times we hear people like me who preach verse by verse put people down who preach portions of passages. You don't see a lot of verse by verse preaching by the apostles. You see a lot of verses strung together. Do it correctly and it's okay. Do it wrong and we'll correct you. Okay, so do it correctly so you don't get corrected. But if you notice, verse by verse by verse by verse, they normally don't do that. They'll take passages and put them all together. And if you're doing that right in a theme, you can get a whole thought. And so what he's going to do here is take pretty much the thought of the Psalms towards the unbeliever, and he's going to put it towards the Jew as well as the Gentile and say, without Christ, all of you are in the same status of unbelievers. Let's go. Verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. Well, before I get into the next thing, what just happened? At the beginning it says, what advantage then is there in being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. But then now he says, what do we conclude? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. Did he contradict himself? No. What he is saying is two different subjects. Do the Jews have an advantage of knowing God in a way the Gentiles have not in history? Yes, they actually had the right God. These guys are worshiping Molech and sacrificing their children. The Jews had the God of heaven and earth. These guys have false prophets. These guys have real prophets. So you had an advantage. That's the advantage you have. Did you have an advantage of salvation that you were going to be judged differently? No. 
You're not going to be judged any different. The judge of heaven and earth will do what's right, and he will be justified when he judges Jew and Gentile. Amen. So not at all in that sense, for we have already made the charge, and when did he make that charge? In chapter 2, that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, here he goes, here he starts to preach, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. There's your reference in Psalm 14, 1 through 3. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit, Psalm 5, 9. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, Psalm 10, verse 7. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. The one non-Psalm reference, Isaiah 59, 7 through 8. There is no fear of God before their eyes, Psalm 36, verse 1. That's a powerful preaching passage. He laid it out. That's how we teach people the need to be born again. We start right there. So when I ask somebody on the streets, have you been born again? They go, no, I'm good. I go, no, you're not. (laughs) Right? No, you're not. And even if sometimes people try to slander us and say, well, you might as well not go reach those unreached people now because at least they have the best chance of being saved by their conscience. No, 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 no. I've got to reach them so that they can have the fullness of the gospel, be a disciple, and keep preaching to their neighbors and their friends and give the best opportunity for everybody to be saved. And listen, if I come to them and I now say, here's the further way, here's the way you're supposed to go, and they go, no, 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 I'm good. I say, no, 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 you haven't been good, but God's been merciful, and even now you're going to be for sure not good. So there's nobody saved apart from Jesus, but this is what I believe, and I didn't get a chance to talk about this. How does Cornelius respond when the gospel comes to him? See, as a God-fearer, Cornelius welcomes the gospel. How did the Ethiopian eunuch, who was minding his own business and then ran into Philip that day, respond to the gospel open? So as we study like the book Eternity in Their Hearts, when people were living that way in their conscience, reaching out to God, receiving whatever light they had, when God gave them more light, they mass, in mass numbers came to Christ. Isn't that powerful? Look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world accountable to God. So the law, in this sense, condemns everybody because it's in the Jew and the Gentile, but only the Jew could say, I know it in its fullness. The Gentile would only probably know the moral portions. Are you with me? Now look at verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So when I go and preach to that village, now I tell them more about the law, they're going to start to feel more conviction than they even did in their own conscience. 
So they're going to see the great need of Jesus. And even now when we preach to other religions and they think they're going to be saved and we tell them the full requirement to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself, have you always done that? Or not to lust, I mean, have you done that? Or not to sin in your anger, you know, have you done that? We show the world no one in that worldview can be saved. We show all sinners, all people without Christ that are condemned, amen? But righteousness comes another way. It comes by faith. And then some people now want to go, well, that must just start with Jesus now. Now now righteousness comes by faith. But back then, they were doing it by the law, right? Because they had, no, 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 no. Paul's point in Romans 4 is going to be, no, the same way Abraham was justified is the way Moses was justified. David, whoever had the most of the law and did the most of the law, they were still ultimately justified by their righteous, I mean, by their faith. That's where they were made righteous, amen? Just like now in the new covenant, we have all these laws, we have all these commands. None, none of them make me more righteous than what I get as righteousness when I'm in Christ. Do you guys get that? You're not, you're not getting more righteous as you do more right things. The Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5.21, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Does everybody see that? You're as righteous as you'll ever be in Christ. And without Christ, you are as wicked as you need to be to go to hell because you don't have one good thing in you. You could keep doing worse and worse things, but you'll still never have one good thing in you. Do you get that? But in Christ, you can't add to your righteousness. No good work will ever add to your righteousness. So if you had a righteous meter, when you were without Christ, you were at zero. You were at zero. And then as you being zero, disconnected to God, you might have done more wicked things than the next person. And the Bible even talks about degrees of punishment in hell like it talks about degrees of blessing on the new earth, okay? So you'll suffer in ways that others won't. Like the Bible says, woe unto you, Bethsaidon and Titan. It's gonna be worse for you than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah didn't have what you have. And, and, and Jonah was a prophet and Nineveh repented. It's gonna be worse for you than them, right? So the Bible talks about worse than punishment. And then the Bible talks about being blessed. You guys will sit on thrones. You will be rulers. So it talks about different degrees. But here's the deal. You had zero righteousness. That is true without Christ. And just to that extent you were at a zero righteousness is as now how much righteousness you have in Christ without your own merits of righteousness. It's 100% Christ. So I was a zero without Christ. Now I'm 100% in Christ. It's like the exact extreme. Does everybody get that? It was, it's an exact extreme. As unrighteous as I was without Christ is as righteous as I am in Christ. So we don't get it by the law. All law is in both covenants is what the righteous do. The righteous live by faith. And by faith, what do they do? The righteous things of God. You were created in Christ Jesus to what? Do good works, which he prepared beforehand to do. Let's keep going. Verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and prophets testify. Listen to that again. But now apart from the law... The righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and prophets testify. Now, what I love here is the NIV helps you a little bit, gives you a capital L for law. 
That, I think, summarizes the whole Pentateuch. The lowercase law, which is the same word in the Greek, but they're trying to help you and kind of leaning towards the way I'm interpreting this, which is the time it's talking about lowercase law, it's talking about the moral law, the things that everyone would be held accountable to. When it talks here about the law and the prophets, connects it together with the prophets, it's meaning specifically all 613 of them. But this portion of the Bible, the Law and Prophets, pretty much the Old Testament, spoke about a time when you would be seeking God without having to do those things to be righteous and that you would automatically be righteous in God. Now, they looked to that as a foreshadow in the sacrifice. They always knew that there was a connection between what they could never be good enough at and that sacrifice that had to take their their mistakes and their sins. But they never understood how deep it was really going to go. It was a mystery to them. And now Christ has come and is revealing it to them that they knew there was a connection that they were never good enough, but they never knew how they were going to get good enough. And then Jesus comes and fulfills the, the sacrificial law as the Lamb of God, and now we understand how we get to become fully righteous in all ways. It's an inward transformation. And that's why I personally believe they were not inwardly born again until the death, burial, and resurrection. So they had a relationship with God that was a bit different than ours. It wasn't as internal and as um, identity-based. So it was still a walk of faith that they were the people of God, but it was more of how they saw uh, they, them being the people of God as they saw themselves as that because of their genealogy and the things they did. It leaned them towards that way. But there was that promise that it would be leaning towards another way, that they would see it not as who they were through a person or the things they did that made them separate and holy, that it would actually be an intrinsic holiness, an ontological holiness, a holiness of being. And that's like what Ezekiel promises. I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will move you to keep my commands. Oh, we just got to go there. Go to Ezekiel. I will move you. So there was a, a promise that it would be different, amen? So we don't want to just say, Ezekiel chapter 33, we don't just want to say, um, well, they believed in uh, salvation by works, and now they, you know, we believe in grace. No, 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 there was still a salvation of grace and faith for them, and then now we just don't want to brush it all aside and go, well, it's, it's all just uh, the same. No, it was a bit different. Oh, what is it? Is it Ezekiel chapter 30? I will put a new heart in you to move you to keep my laws. I said Ezekiel 33. That's the watchman one. There you go, sir. 36, verse 26. Look at this, verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart, uh, remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. There's a promise in there that they knew they didn't have. They looked at a prophet and would say, you're different than me because you have the spirit come on you and off of you. And then even a prophet like David would look at himself and go, I don't like it when the spirit moves off of me. I wish I could live in the, the, the temple every day of my life. 
And then Joel says, oh, sons and daughters are going to prophesy. And all these things are like leading towards this. And so now we know, like when Jesus breathes on them, receive the Holy Spirit, there's now an inward regeneration, a change of being, a change of person that introduces them into a spiritual world called the kingdom of God in a way they've never experienced it. And now they have the Holy Spirit in, moving out instead of out coming in. That was the difference of covenants. That's why Jesus came, and that's what made it significantly better. And that's why things, you know, Jesus says something like this. Oh, in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, John's the greatest, but in the, in the kingdom of God, he's the least. You guys remember that? Well, why is that? Because in the kingdom of God, we have what John the Baptist didn't have. That kind of a relationship, an Ezekiel relationship, uh, um, you know, Ezekiel 36, 26 relationship, or a Joel chapter 2 relationship. Amen. Let's go back to Romans. Is that good? Mm. Come on, go back to Romans. We're going deep. So now he says, this righteousness, let's go back to verse 21. I'll close it out here. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Is it given by God just randomly? No, the righteousness is given to those who what? Believe. Now, if they want to say, well, can you believe on your own? Because the Bible says, and, and it's going to get here, that we're not capable of doing one thing. The mindset on the flesh is against God. How could you ever do one good thing? As I've said before, if I can't call the president, does that mean I can't answer the call from the president? I don't save myself. I don't give myself the faith. But can I choose to believe when the word is preached and, and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God? Do I make a choice then? Yes. Still grace. All to God. I'm getting saved, but I'm not resisting the salvation. You still have a choice to resist. It's still grace, but it's not irresistible. Amen? As I've given you that example before, they want to make it like you're dead and passed out and God's taking you up and giving you mouth and mouth and resuscitating you. That's salvation. But salvation is that. The dead of Ephesians is not like that. The dead of Ephesians that the Bible is talking about, we're all dead in our transgressions and sin, is the dead of the prodigal son. He's still out making his own decisions, and he's dead to his father, as the Bible says, but he can come back to his senses. How did he come back to his senses? You're supposed to read into that. He came back by the Holy Spirit. The conviction, he gave into it. And that's why we'll go to Acts 17 before we leave, okay? It says, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so it's like there's no difference and we're all sinners. Watch, all are justified freely by grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. So it doesn't matter what our genealogy is. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. He was our sacrificial lamb. He takes our guilt, our punishment. The wrath of God was on him, the Bible says, through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. We have to receive that by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. So the, the, the death of animals and all that, that was just holding back the punishment. Punishment. If he never would have came and died, they still deserve punishment because the blood of animals can't do it. That was a foreshadow. So it's like, what do you want? Uh, if I was holding a million dollars in my hand, do you want my hand with the million dollars or a shadow of it? Right? And if you had to pay a debt, can you pay it with the shadow? You have to pay with what's in the hand. And so here's the shadow. It's leading. See, the shadow is reaching before I'm coming. Do you see it? The shadow is ahead of me while I'm walking. Have I crossed over the plug on the floor yet? No, but my shadow has. That was what was going on. The shadow's coming, and if it wasn't coming, there would be no redemption. So it's 
just a shadow of the animals, but then boom, here comes Jesus. Amen? He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Beautiful. He is just, and he's the one who justifies. Beautiful play on words there. He is just in condemning all of you, and he's just in saving you, in other words. But it's by faith, and faith is the choice you get to make when God is speaking his word to you. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. It's gone. You can't boast in this, neither Jew nor Gentile. Because of what law? Why is all the boasting gone? Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. Think about that. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. But does that mean we keep following the law of Moses? No. Romans 6, 14 says, For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. You're no longer under it, but you're upholding it. Do you see the difference? We're not under it. We're upholding it. We're where Jesus is, where he perfected it. So the Old Testament was like first grade. He perfected it and passed it and brought us into second grade. As long as we're with him, baby, we're passing grades. We don't have to go back to it anymore. As Galatians says, as the slave woman, we live now as the free woman. We're not hanging out with the tutor. We're hanging out with our father because we're a son or a daughter. It gets an inheritance. Because as long as you're a son or a daughter, you're still under a tutor. You're no different than a slave when it comes to the inheritance, Paul said. But when you're saved, you're a true son or daughter walking in the inheritance of his righteousness. Amen? And then go quickly to Acts 17 to just see that good Arminian preaching from Paul, non-Calvinist preaching from Acts chapter 17. Listen to this. Verse 26, for from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. He marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would what? Seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your, as some of your own prophets have said, we are his offspring. Oh, but I thought Romans 3 says, no one seeks God. That's right, unless he seeks you first. And he is seeking you. Oh, he'll only draw in those he wants. No, no, he said, he will, when I be lifted up, I will draw all people unto me. Well, what does John 6 say? When those who are drawn, they can't resist, they have to come. Those were the Jews who were waiting for the Messiah. That to them is the fulfillment. So it's like an irresistible grace. Of course, they could still change if they wanted to. But the drawing there where no one takes them out of their hands and no one else can come to them unless the Father draws them, those are the righteous Jews. And he's saying, I got you. I will lose none of you. You are all with me. Just as you followed the Father, you're going to now father me. I'll follow me. It's not going to be a big step for you. You know, for, for others, it's, it's the rock of stumbling. But for you, it's your foundation. That's all he was saying in John 6. 
But the drawing, the calling, many are called, but few are chosen, right? The drawing, he said later on in John, when I be lifted, I'll draw all people unto me. What is that drawing? That's the call of the gospel. That's why we're going out into all the world, preaching to them that they might be saved. And what determines whether or not they are saved? It's determined on whether or not they want to have faith. It's not their work. It's just, do you receive faith? Do you accept faith? Do you humble yourself in the light of God to have faith? Amen? And so we're not under the law, we uphold the law, and then uh, we're going to be off for a long time, aren't we? We don't come back until, I believe, March something, right? Everybody look at your calendars, because then I'll go into Romans chapter 4, we're off the 18th, we're off the 25th, we're off the 4th, we're off the 11th, off the 18th, I will see you back March 25th, March 25th, everybody double check that, let's get Jared, Jared, Yep. Everybody check their calendar, and then we'll close in prayer. Father, we thank you today. May we uphold the law and live by faith, righteous, because you you bled on that cross for us to wash away our sins. Help us to teach your word. Be with all of the Calvinists who understand this wrongly. Let them see your grace is free, but it's resistible. And may all of us here not walk in fear of losing our salvation, walk in total security, but realize it's up to us to continue to fight the good fight of faith because just like others became unfaithful and got cut off, we could become unfaithful and get cut off and walk out through unbelief. So may we finish the race by your grace and strength so that you could say to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.